Hello there. Welcome to this episode of Bridging the Gaps. I'm your host, Dr. Vaseem Akhtar. My guest today is Melanie Mitchell, a professor of complexity at the Santa Fe Institute in New Mexico. Her research focuses on genetic algorithms, conceptual abstraction, analogy making, and visual recognition in artificial intelligence systems. She originated the Santa Fe Institute's Complexity Explorer Project, an online learning resource for complex systems. Today, we are going to discuss her book, Artificial Intelligence, a guide for thinking humans. Melanie, thank you very much for joining me and a very warm welcome to Bridging the Gaps. Thank you. I'm very excited to be here. Uh, present day artificial intelligence systems are goal oriented, are narrowly focused and are designed to perform singular tasks. There is a view that we should develop artificial intelligence system that can work in general settings. Before we discuss how we can do this, how this can be achieved, let us try to recap the story of artificial intelligence. How did it all begin? Uh, should we start with the, the perceptron? Uh, I think it was developed in 1958. Yeah, the, the perceptron was uh, actually uh, one in many attempts to try and automate intelligence by using inspiration from the brain. It was developed by a psychologist named Frank Rosenblatt. Uh, and he tried to simulate in a very idealized way how neurons work and a simple network of neurons, how, how they might go about recognizing some perceptual input, hereby the perceptron. Uh, and... Um, they were one of the first uh, AI systems that learned from training examples. So you might give them lots of examples of, say, handwritten digits, like one, you know, zero, one, two, three, and so on. And then after many training iterations, they would actually be able to then recognize new examples. So that was, you know, one of the first instances of machine learning. Mm -hmm. And that and that was 1958. Yeah, now he worked on it in the 1950s for the most mm -hmm. part, but 1958 was one of the um, sort of publications and press releases and so on of of these systems. Melanie, there was a lot of optimism in the early days of artificial intelligence. Very high profile researchers, very smart people suggested that we would make huge progress soon. And in just one generation, we would have machines capable of doing tasks that require human level intelligence. You discuss these statements in the book. Can you share a few examples with us? Yeah, so some of the most famous pioneers of AI, people like Marvin Minsky, Herbert Simon, uh, even someone as renowned as Claude Shannon, all in the, the 1960s were promising that we'd see something like human-level AI within the next 10, 15, 20 years or so. Um, and this was a common thought that, that AI really wouldn't take that long to be solved in some sense. The um, pioneers of AI all gathered at an initial meeting in not, actually 1956 in, at Dartmouth College, the famous Dartmouth conference. Um, and they had a goal, which was to make 
a lot of progress on some of the most fundamental issues like natural language understanding and computer vision and uh, com you know general AI AI systems that could do mathematics that could uh, drive cars do all the kinds of things that humans do and they just didn't think it would take all that long and and some of this optimism or should I say hype is still there. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's been a constant throughout the history of the field. We still see people nowadays even proclaiming that we're going to see human level AI within the next, you know, decade or even shorter, perhaps. Um, and um, it, you know, some people who watch the field have quipped that AI is 15 to 20 years away as it always has been and always will be. Melanie, let us try to understand what is artificial intelligence. There are different definitions out there. And sometimes uh, these definitions are circular definitions and you cannot actually understand that what is being defined here. Uh, so um, how would you define AI? AI is really a big umbrella term that encompasses a lot of different uh, computational methods for getting machines to do things that we consider to be intelligent. Of course, the things that we consider to require intelligence often have changed over the course of the last you know, 70 years because of progress in AI. So you know, a good example is playing chess. People used to believe that in order to be able to play chess at a grandmaster level, that would require general human intelligence. But we saw like in the, in the 1990s, chess programs such as IBM's Deep Blue was able to beat people like Garry Kasparov, the, the world chess champion at the time, uh, just by doing a lot of very brute force search and using very fast computers. And everybody who looked at it said, well, wait a minute, that's not general intelligence at all. The system can't do anything but play chess. It can't even play a simple game like checkers, you know. It can only play chess, and um, yet it's achieved this uh, milestone of being able to beat the best humans at chess. And so people said, "Okay, well, we were wrong. Playing chess doesn't necessarily take uh, general intelligence." And there's just been many examples like that throughout the history of the field, where our notion of what is intelligence has changed. And I think intelligence is another one of those umbrella terms that doesn't really have a single definition. And one of the problems is that people don't have a clear view of what the target is, the target being intelligence. We don't even know what we mean by that. And that term is constantly being refined. And what is your favorite definition? <laughs> Well, I try to avoid any fixed definition because it's all always changing. But um, I'm more, I more think of uh, the target as kind of this, uh, ter in terms of behaviors. You know, can the system sort of at least be able to act like? a human in all kinds of different circumstances or be able to deal with all kinds of different circumstances, even if it's not in a human-like way, um, be able to generalize, be able to make analogies, something that I think we'll talk about later on, um, be able to use what we call common sense. So all of these very, it's a hard problem. It's hard to define exactly what the goal of the field is. And I think different people have different goals 
you know, as you said, there's often, there's many narrow examples of AI. Like for instance, speech recognition, you can uh, dictate to your phone uh, an email and it can send it, it can transcribe it for you and send it. That's um, a narrow area where that it's very successful. And yet um, those systems can't do anything else. Like they can't, uh, they don't actually understand in any sense the text that they're transcribing. So um, it's, the, you know, we're still quite far away for, from general AI, AI in part because we don't really know what that means. In the early days of artificial intelligence, the field of machine learning was a very small part of AI landscape. The main focus was on programming rules and creating artificial intelligence. So, uh, Talk to us about the emergence of uh, uh, this approach of machine learning. Right. So I mentioned that the perception was an early effort at machine learning, but there was another school of thought in uh, AI that was that the machines shouldn't, we shouldn't focus on learning. We should more focus on humans trying to program in knowledge and rules that systems would use. So, an example of this was expert systems, which were very popular in the 1970s and 1980s, where um, programmers would interview experts in a field like medical diagnosis of some kind and would try and extract the rules and the knowledge that they used to perform this task and try and program that into the computer. And the computer would do little, if any, learning at all on its own. Um, but that approach turned out to be much um, harder than people imagined. It turned out to be somewhat disappointing because it turns out that many of the rules and maybe most of the knowledge that experts used was hard to extract from them because it was not, they were not using it consciously. <laughs> it was more an unconscious general knowledge of how uh, the world worked and how their particular domain worked that they couldn't articulate very well. And therefore, programmers trying to extract those rules couldn't get at them. <laughs> so uh, expert systems kind of fell out of favor. And in the late 1980s and 1990s, um, the, the approach of statistical machine learning that is trying to unite machine learning with inference uh, inference from data um, sort of took off and in many ways is still going today and has turned out to be, at least for the problems it's solved, more successful than the old sort of expert system approach. And then obviously, uh, we now hear these type of terms like deep learning, and uh, perhaps uh, that is uh, one of the most effective tool that is out there. Right. So you can think of the perceptron, which I mentioned early on, as kind of the great, great, great grandparent of today's deep neural networks. So, you know, the whole field of neural networks, alongside of expert systems, it was still progressing with a small number of people doing research on it, but they were kind of shunted off to the side, didn't get very much funding, didn't get very much respect. Very few people thought that neural networks would ever take off. But all of a sudden, now that they have enough data to work on, given the huge uh, growth of the internet, which, in which we store all of our data, um, and enough uh, fast parallel hardware 
to work on, they, they suddenly took off and became the most successful approaches. And these uh, deep learning networks, uh, these neural networks uh, uh, can be trained to do narrowly defined tasks. However, while doing these narrowly defined tasks, uh, when there are even minor changes in the situation, uh, minor changes in the input data, these machines produce incorrect results. Yeah, the people uh, use the word brittleness, meaning that the systems can be very good at dealing with the kind of data that they've been trained on. But so, for instance, if you're trying to say recognize um, objects in a scene, like cars and traffic lights and pedestrians on the road, say for a self-driving car, if the weather changes and the lighting changes, uh, it's raining or something, they no longer work very well because they haven't you know, it's harder to uh, for them to make sense of the scene. And um, if they haven't been trained on a, a certain kind of situation, they are unable to um, perform well. So this is um, this lack of generalization that I mentioned, that generalization is one of the most important parts of intelligence. And generalization is exactly when we take something that we've learned and are able to apply it in different situations. And then there is another very interesting challenge and something that uh, is uh, perhaps difficult to understand also, the challenge of lack of explainability. Uh, It seems it is hard to explain how these deep learning systems actually learn and how these uh, systems make decisions. Please talk us through this challenge of lack of explainability of uh, deep learning systems. So deep learning systems are loosely inspired by the brain. You know, they consist of relatively simple simulated neurons that are connected by uh, weighted connections where the weights are what are changed when they're learning. So the strengths of the connections. But the most successful systems have um, millions to billions of these weighted connections, some even more nowadays. And once they've learned, so say what happens is they're trained on these examples. Like if I'm trying to identify pedestrians in the road, mm. it'd be shown lots of examples of pedestrians uh, and they, they, they would be, you know, the weights would be modified each time when the, the, the machine made a mistake in identifying things. And this would go on for say, you know, hundreds of thousands of examples. And then at the end, what are you left with? You're left with a big giant network of um, billions of parameters or numbers. Sort of like if you were gonna, if I was going to, uh, you know, look inside your head and try to see all of your neurons firing, how would I make sense of what you were thinking about? Well, the Mm -hmm. same thing kind of applies to these deep neural networks, that they're very hard to to figure out what exactly they're doing. And they don't have a language like we do that allows us to kind of put into words what and communicate to each other why we make decisions uh, the way we do. So it's hard if a neural network makes some decision or classifies your face as say, oh, you are... Mm -hmm. uh, wanted criminal, even when you aren't, <laughs> just to, uh, to, to understand why exactly it made that decision. So 
I'm sure it makes it very challenging for the researchers in this field when they try to understand that how the decisions are being made uh, when, yes, you have a system, yes, you have a lot of data and you have just completed the training and the system is giving you right answers, is recognizing images and all those. But you as a researcher or even the person who have built the system have no idea how the decisions are being made. Yeah, so... This whole area of explainable AI or transparent AI has is, is become a sort of subfield of its own in the greater research field of AI. So many people are working on methods for trying to uh, make AI systems more explainable to try and figure out what parts of the data they were relying on to make their decisions and why they made a particular decision. Uh, that's, it turns out to be a very difficult problem and, um, you know, ideally, you'd have the machines be able to explain themselves. But I think we're still quite far away from that level of sort of self-awareness <laughs> in AI systems. An interesting point that you make in the book is about learning versus understanding. The AI systems uh, that can successfully perform narrowly defined tasks seems to know what they are doing, uh, seem to have learned how to do that particular task, uh, for instance, playing chess. But do such systems understand what they are doing? That's a big question. And you you discuss this in the book. Right. So this term understand is difficult to define, just like intelligence, right? It's no, another one of those terms. But, you know, when we think about human understanding, if I'm playing a game of chess, you know, I understand that it's a game, that it's not anything that's going to affect my actual life. Uh, you know, it's not going to kill me if I lose. Uh, I understand that there's an opponent and I understand that the goal is to win and winning is a good thing. And um, I have all kinds of associations with the, the notion of winning or the notion of losing, the notion of competition, the notion of what a game is. Whereas the AI systems don't have any kind of deep uh, sort of associations of, of, or experience or anything to um, make them have that kind of understanding that we have. You know, they're just, they're, they're um, you know, Deep Blue, the chess playing program or AlphaGo, the Go playing program, they don't even know what a game is. You know, they can play mm. the game, they can make the moves, but they don't know what an opponent is in any rich sense. They don't know what winning is in any you know, rich sense the way that we humans do. So they, and the same is true, in fact, for computer vision programs, you know, say a, we were talking about vision programs that could say recognize cars on the road. They don't know, they have a visual, temp, some kind of visual template for what a car is, but they don't have any associations about riding in cars or mm -hmm. the notion why people, why there are cars, what cars are used for, you know, all of those things that we know about the world that um, informs our understanding of these concepts. The, these AI systems don't have that. And why, in your view, 
it is important to work on uh, uh, on on the concept of understanding and concept of meaning and why in your view it is important that the AI systems should have uh, 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 an understanding, should have understanding of the bigger picture as opposed to just learning based on numbers number crunching? Well, as we we earlier talked about, these systems have this brittleness, you know, they're not able to generalize. And I think one of the prerequisites of generalization is this kind of understanding. Uh, and um, so, so I guess my hypothesis would be without some kind of understanding given to these systems, they, they're not going to be able to be robust or reliable in real world situations. Um, you know, we see like if think about when you're driving, uh, you see, say, pedestrians doing things um, on the road, and you can predict what they're going to do next because you have some understanding of human psychology, right? You know that if somebody's like yelling at somebody on their cell phone, uh, they might not be paying attention to the road because you know that when you're mad at somebody and you're yelling, you're probably distracted and so on. So that, that kind of knowledge is uh, absolutely essential for being able to predict what's going to happen in a given situation in the real world. And so that's the kind of thing that we're going to have to give machines if we want them to be uh, reliable and trustworthy. You have identified um, this challenge uh, that uh, these machines should have this uh, understanding of the wider situation. Uh, and and the, the interesting point here is that you suggest the use of analogies to make artificial intelligence systems uh, understand, develop understanding, and have an understanding what they are doing, why they are doing, and how they should be doing this. Yeah, I think our ability to make analogies, which is which means to to sort of see abstract similarities between situations, is fundamental to our intelligence, to our understanding of the world, because it's a way that we take things that we've experienced or knowledge that we have, and we are able to apply that knowledge and that experience to some completely new situation and know how to deal with it. I mean, a very simple example is. Um, you know, say that you you know how to drive a car, right? Now, we've all had this experience where you get into a rental car and you're trying to find like where the headlights are and mm -hmm. where uh, the different like op things are that you need to operate the car. And often it's very different from what you've had, what you've had it seen in your own car, but you can by analogy know that there's gonna be such a thing. And so, you know, and you know sort of where it's most likely to be, where to look for it. Uh, that's a really simple example, but we use analogies all the time, unconsciously, mostly, uh, in, in our daily lives. And we use them to understand situations that we're placed in. So I think without being able to make analogies like that, um, machines are not going to be able to deal with new situations in a very flexible way like we can. And you also suggest and you also discuss uh, creating an ability in such systems to speculate. Why, in your view, that is helpful? To speculate. You mean, uh, well, okay, so 
a lot of what we intelligence is is for is to be able to predict to predict what's going to happen next and um in most situations we humans can consciously or unconsciously predict what's going to happen next because uh you know we've had similar experiences so predicting is kind of uh, that's another word for speculating right and the other thing that it allows us to do is to um make counterfactuals like <laughs> to realize like if oh if i um you know if i hadn't uh turned on my microphone which has happened in po past uh podcasts <laughs> um i wouldn't have been able to uh you know, carry out a conversation with you and to, to sort of learn from not only what's happened to us, but what's not happened to us and what we can make counterfactuals about. <laughs> so all those, all those abilities are really important for intelligence in general. And I think for machine intelligence as well. So overall, what you are suggesting here is that uh, we should uh, try to, and we should aim to transform existing artificial intelligence systems to the systems that have the ability to speculate, ability to understand. So is this journey towards artificial general intelligence? It could, it can be, you know, I don't think that artificial general intelligence is necessarily something that we need or want for many applications, you know, Recently, there was this incredible breakthrough in AI in the field of protein folding. So you may have heard about this um, uh, program called AlphaFold that was created by DeepMind, the same company that created AlphaGo. Uh, so they were able to use um, a, a, an AI system to look at uh, protein sequences of amino acids and then predict how they were going to fold up in three dimensions, which is an incredibly important problem for like drug design and all kinds of uh, medical applications, uh, biological engineering and so on. And so this was a huge breakthrough. They were able to do this better than any other, you know, human uh, uh, driven system. Uh, but they did it. You don't need, it turned out you don't need AGI for that. In fact, maybe AGI would have hindered it because the strength of the system was to, um, look at the data in a new way, in a way that humans wouldn't look at the data. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, contrast that with the problem of autonomous cars. There, you want the system to have some kind of general intelligence that makes it able to predict the world in the same way that humans would. Because if it's predicting the world in a different way, it's going to get into all kinds of accidents and trouble which is what we have now. <laughs> so there's like these different approach, there's diff different approaches are correct for different applications of, of AI. Now, from implementation point of view, uh, how do you see getting such features, for instance, to speculate, uh, for instance, to understand the wider problem uh, implemented and built in AI systems? Right. So that's the big question. How do we do this? And uh, there's a lot of ideas out there. Um, I think there's no uh, system that actually achieves all this yet. One of the main, one of the big ideas is um, to incorporate notions of causality 
So this is a little bit subtle, but you know, a, a neural network learning to identify cars is just making statistical correlations. It's saying this set of pixels in my vision visual field seems to correlate with what humans say is a car. And so does this one, and so does this one. So this is a big statistical correlation. But there's no notion of cause, like the idea that um, cars, um, being a car is, you know, has to do with like movement and, and uh, movement is what, uh, gasoline is what causes a car to, to move, you know, to having these sort of models of how the system actually operates and works. And this notion of causality, which allows like a, a, an intelligent agent to go in and sort of design experiments. Like if your car isn't running, doesn't work, what, what do you do now? Uh, well, you have, if you have some model of how the car works, you start trying things that might, might help it. Um, you might say, oh, the battery is dead or something, but you have to have some model about how the, the car works that is uh, not just associations. So uh, that's something that a lot of people are looking at is how to get these systems to, to reason with causality. Um, another thing is that um, these systems, current day systems um, have to learn from many, many, many examples. Mm -hmm. Whereas humans don't, right? Humans are able to learn uh, very often a new concept from just a few examples. So in the field that's called few shot learning. So that's a big open problem. And, and, and so one way to approach it is to look at human learning, especially the learning of, of very young humans like babies. And AI, a lot of people in AI are now working together with uh, people in developmental psychology to ask, how is it that babies actually learn about the world? And there's a great experiment done by, um, that I saw done by um, a psychologist named Linda Smith at Indiana mm -hmm. University, where she put um, these GoPro cameras on the heads of babies and just recorded them doing things like, you know, it recorded what they saw. And you could see them like manipulating objects in different ways and not just visually, but like tasting them and <laughs> putting them on their heads and dropping them. And, you know, all these sort of physical manipulations seem really important to making, to getting a good robust representation of a particular object or concept. And that's something that we don't do with machines, but maybe we need to. So these kinds of inspirations from uh, psychology and, and just other sciences of, of natural intelligence, I think are really important. And and do you think that uh, these mathematical models will eventually be incorporated in these uh, deep learning uh, systems? They will be an add-on, they will be another layer, or they will be totally different type of systems? Wow, that's a hard question. One of the reasons it's hard is because the, <laughs> the definition of deep learning uh, keeps shifting so it's a little bit hard to say whether it will become part of deep learning. Maybe deep learning will completely change its meaning like artificial intelligence has over the course of its history. I personally think there's gonna to have to be some um, major innovations in how we design these systems in order to um, 
allow them to do the kinds of things we've been talking about. And no one really yet has a great idea for how to do that. And there's a lot of debate in the AI world about that. Um, so, you know, I think a lot of people are doing a lot of different uh, approaches, but I think we'll, we'll start to see some very new approaches co coming out of the field over the next uh, however many years, you know, next couple of decades. This nicely leads us to my next question. So if a lot of experimentation is going on, a lot of research is going on and models are being developed and we are not sure which model will work uh, perfectly and which model will not work and will it work uh, with the existing um, 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 uh, AI systems as a complementary system or will it be a totally different system? So if this research is going on, but at the same time, we are again hearing these claims uh, we are reading these statements in media that uh, in just 10 years, we will have artificial general intelligence in in 20 years. By, by, by 2050, we will have uh, systems that uh, will have general intelligence. So where those statements are coming from, pure speculation, uh, human speculation now. We earlier spoke about AI speculation, but are these just human speculation? Or do you think people are confident that we will have the solutions to these challenges and we will have these systems? I think some people truly believe that. And they see, they, they sort of cite the rapid progress in AI over the last several years. You know, we've seen systems improve in these narrow tasks enormously. And so a lot of people think, well, that means if we keep improving in these narrow tasks, it won't, won't be that long until we can get these more general human-like systems. However, I think that's actually a fallacy. Um, and I talked about that in one of my papers. Um, it's actually a fallacy that was first brought up by a philosopher named Hubert Dreyfus, who wrote a book called What Computers Still Can't Do. And uh, he said uh, that this idea that, you know, as long as we make progress along these narrow areas, assuming that there's then kind of this continuum to more general AI is, is false. There's this obstacle that he, he called the common sense knowledge problem which is this problem we've been talking about in mm -hmm. terms of like common sense and knowledge about the yes. world. Mm -hmm. You know, we can get systems that can do all kinds of great things, but we can't give them this common sense knowledge. Nobody knows how to do that. Um, and that's maybe the, 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 the big obstacle. Um, common sense has been called the dark matter of AI and <laughs> kind of an analogy to dark matter in physics, which is, you know, yeah everywhere and yet we can't, we don't understand it and uh, we can't control it. And so the idea there is that, you know, common sense is just everywhere. We're not aware of it. It's, it's uh, you know, the kind of common sense reasoning we do all the time. And yet we don't know how to give it to machines. I think this is a fantastic analogy. Uh, <laughs> common sense. Um, calling the dark matter of AI very, 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 very interesting. So how do you see AI progressing? Uh, so if I take one example, for instance, do you see in 10 years time, we will have self-driving cars uh, uh, everywhere? How do you see AI progressing? 
Yeah, it's really hard to predict. <laughs> I think that, you know, like many technologies, progress is as much comes as much from progress in the actual technology as progress in society and the infrastructure for that technology. So for self-driving cars, right now, you know, they they can't drive on their own in every kind of circumstance that humans can. But maybe we'll make the roads more friendly to self-driving cars. We'll make more, put more sensors in the roads. We'll do more um, detailed mapping. We'll only let the cars drive in certain weather conditions in certain parts of uh, cities that are uh, set up for that. And then we'll call it self-driving cars. Whereas, um, you know, the technology may not ever get to the point of, you know, human-like driving, but we'll be able to set up the infrastructure that allows it to, to, to exist and be safe. I think that's the most likely scenario. Uh, in other areas, you know, I think uh, we'll see a lot of progress, as, as we said, in these more narrow, defined areas. Um, as for progress in like giving machines common sense, that's totally up in the air. I don't know if we'll succeed at that or not. Melanie, uh, when you were just um, uh, discussing self-driving cars two minutes ago, you used the word that you're not sure that we will ever get there. So this is a strong statement. Right. So, as you know, I'm not sure. I, I think it's possible. I don't see any reason why it's impossible in principle to build what you might call full self-driving, which really would mean that, you know, you could get into a car, it tell it to go anywhere you want in any, you know, any weather that a human could drive in and it would do it as safely as a human. Um, but I think there are a lot of these sort of uh, technological problems that have to be solved first. So, I don't know if those problems will ever be solved. I think they probably will, but I think it's going to take longer than people expect. It's already taken longer than people expect because the mm -hmm. problems, you know, the things driving seems so easy to us. It doesn't seem that hard, right? But it relies on a lot of unconscious knowledge and common sense that we are using all the time. Again, the dark matter. So perhaps... The the core challenge here is uh, developing common sense in machines, developing this uh, uh, a thorough understanding of the problem that they are tackling. Perhaps this is the main thing. And if, if somehow we can crack this problem, then perhaps other problems uh, will, will, uh, will be resolved in due course? Possibly, yeah. I mean, I think the, one of the big problems is first defining our terms and, and getting a better sense of what we mean when we say common sense and understanding. And part of that come, has to come from other sciences that look at intelligence. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the things I'm focusing on now is trying to build teams of AI researchers with people from other disciplines who think about intelligence, not only say in a human, but also maybe in animals, in social systems, in, in social groups, you know, uh, in because intelligence is extremely a social phenomenon uh, in, in every way. Uh, 
And that's, I think, going to help us get clues about how to refine these concepts like common sense enough to uh, start to formalize them. There are some researchers who think that we can learn uh, from brain also, human brain, biological brain also. Now, there is a view that uh, artificial neural networks that we use, they are modeled the way brain is modeled. Uh, the brain is designed and brain works. Uh, but uh, do you think that there are more that we can learn from these researchers who are actually trying to understand that how does human brain work? Yeah, I absolutely do. There's there's a lot more to um, the human brain than what's captured in our artificial neural networks. So just as an example, um, neurons are actually complex computational <laughs> systems that are very different from what's modeled in these simple neural networks. And perhaps we can take some advantage of some of the interesting uh, complexity of individual neurons. Um, in a neural, in most neural uh, artificial neural networks used today, all of the processing is what's called feed forward, meaning that you know you start at some input layer and then that data is processed in a feed forward way through the layers out to the output. And there's no feedback or very little feedback. Some, some, you know, if your current recurrent neural networks would have, which have some mm -hmm. limited feedback. But in the brain, there's more feedback connections than there are feed-forward connections, you know, from lower to higher areas. And there's, they're extremely important. Um, it's hard to um, get systems to work well with a lot of feedback connections. I mean, the brain does, but, you know, to get artificial systems. I think that, you know, we're sort of at the beginning of trying to understand what all those connections are for and how we can use them to make uh, our, our artificial systems more stable and more robust. Even neuroscientists don't fully understand what all of these feedback connections are trying to do. Mm -hmm. So that's, I think, working together with neuroscientists is really important in trying to uh, take advantage of what they learn. And I, I'm hoping to do more of that. Okay, we, we have discussed the challenges a number of challenges that are there and uh, bottlenecks that are there. And even we can call them barriers that are there. But uh, uh, we are making good progress in narrowly defined areas uh, when it comes to AI and deep learning uh, and, and these systems. Uh, are there any major breakthroughs that you envisage, that you predict uh, will happen in AI, even if, in, even if these are in the specialized areas? Yeah, I, I think that, um, you know, what, we talked earlier about this idea of few shot learning where systems can learn from a much smaller number of examples. I think we will see some breakthroughs in how to do that uh, much better. There's currently several approaches to that. One is called meta learning, which is trying to get machines to learn to learn in some sense, to learn to be able to learn more efficiently and um, that kind of thing may may yield some big progress in in that kind of you know learning, but still in in relatively narrow areas. 
And Melanie, what about those colleagues who are extremely concerned about the developments in the field of artificial intelligence and just even um, going that far uh, and making statements that it is as if summoning the demon? <laughs> I think Elon Musk said that, right? Um, yeah, so obviously there's many issues about about the the ethics of artificial intelligence and you know how far should we try and go to make human-like artificial intelligence we've all seen science fiction movies that never end well where the artificial intelligence system is trying to destroy humans in some way uh, <laughs> i think you know there's there's people who worry about those kinds of things like a uh, super intelligent ai being formed that that then becomes autonomous and uh, starts um, in some way um, attacking or enslaving humans. You know, there, there's that kind of, or, or just doing things that are very negative for humans. Uh, those people, talk, people who worry about that talk about existential risks from AI, like the, our existence itself <laughs> yeah. is threatened. But I think those are really still much more concerns for a far off future, since we're pretty far from creating anything like that right now. I think there's more near term concerns about the systems we already have. Like, for instance, facial recognition systems have been shown to be biased in yeah. towards certain demographics, you know, they, they are more, much more uh, uh, accurate on people with light skin, they're more accurate on uh, males, they, they have certain demographic biases. Same with voice recognition software and other kinds of things that are being deployed in the real world. You know, there was a proposal to um, put face recognition systems in airports mm. to, to verify people's identities. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if then people uh, with darker skin get denied boarding more often. That's, you know, a civil rights problem. <laughs> so I think there's a lot of more near-term worries about these systems that really need to be addressed. This is a question, but uh, it may feel or it may sound like coming from science fiction, but do you think machines may become self-aware one day? I, I think it's certainly possible, you know, self-awareness, again, it's one of those things we don't really understand very well, even in ourselves, like, yeah. where does that self-awareness come from? Yeah. But I don't see there being any special non, non-mechanistic, non-physical process that gives rise to consciousness or self-awareness in us that couldn't be possible for machines. You know, I think we, we need to understand better what, what that is. And, you know, we, 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 we understand it so poorly. We, you know, the, the, our, our uh, uh, sort of views on self-awareness have changed about, even about other humans. You know, one example is that it was believed, it used to be believed that newborn babies didn't feel pain. So they, they would do surgeries on newborn babies without any anesthetics. 
you know, that, that was pretty recent until they've kind of figured out, okay, maybe newborn babies do feel pain. And then there's this other, you know, self, do people in a coma have any self-awareness? And that's, it's, there's, it's hard to go into the brain and figure, figure out, you know, uh, where, if they do or not. And there, there's a lot of controversial things going on now about, you know, should people in a so-called vegetative state be allowed to die? And, you know, there's all these moral issues that have to do with our understanding or lack of understanding of self-awareness, not only in humans, but also in non-human animals. And it's still controversial. So I think it's going to be hard to figure out how, how to decide even if a machine has self-awareness, um, uh, given our lack of understanding of it in, in biological systems. Uh, Melanie, we are discussing your book, Artificial Intelligence, A Guide for Thinking Humans. Uh, we have touched upon a number of topics that you discuss in this book. Obviously, there is a lot more in the book. Uh, is there anything else that you think we should discuss before we finish uh, this discussion? Um. No, I think we covered most of the major points pretty well. <laughs> <laughs> Professor Melanie Mitchell, thank you very much for being with me. It has been an absolute pleasure having you on Bridging the Gaps. Well, thank you. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you and goodbye. Bye-bye. <laughs>